that's where options may assist in ensuring that the super fund has an ability to make progressive purchases over time and all by reference to a fixed or agreed price point. That fixed or agreed price point being fixed at the time of the grant of the original option. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 182 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. If you don't have enough cash in super, but there is enough cash outside of super, you can get your SMSF to jointly buy a property with whoever has that cash, you or another member or a third party like another SMSF or Unitrust or whoever it is. But How exactly does this work? That's pretty much the summary of the questions you sent in. So Peter Bobbin of Argelois in Sydney kindly agreed to give you an answer. So on this occasion, we're going to look at just a whole range of questions as it relates to real estate and superannuation. One of the ones that often gets asked is, where we've got perhaps a couple of people, not in a um, lifetime personal relationship, but otherwise connected, perhaps they're brothers, sisters, business partners, and they want to acquire a particular piece of property. They want to do a joint acquisition and they want to use their superannuation. Well, what sort of approaches could I recommend? Well, really, the decision is going to be a, a factor of what structure they're looking to adopt, how they would do it, and what it means for them. By way of example, if they've each got independent super funds that have sufficient monies to each buy a section of the particular property, then it can easily just be an acquisition, a joint acquisition, two separate SMSFs as uh, tenants in common. Nice and simple. The rent gets then applied separately. You've got two super funds on title. The corporate trustee will be each of them recognised as the tenant common owner as to whatever the relevant share may be, whether it's equal, would be the decision factor of, uh, of the, those parties. And just all costs and expenses are shared equally. One of the things I always recommend when you're planning on what the go-forward position is, of course, also plan for the end game. So might there be rules in place if one wants to sell, should the one super fund have granted already a right of first refusal to the other and what if there's disagreement? Well, if there's a disagreement, might there be a requirement for a public auction? Just think about what the separation rules may be. On a different occasion, it may be that the circumstance of the people coming together to do a joint acquisition is such that they don't have enough money and maybe they want to support the acquisition of their business rural property via superannuation with a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. Well, if that's the case, you'll likely find that the lenders in this market, though technically they don't have to, they'll likely want only the one super fund arrangement. Why is that? Because they only want to put one loan document in place and one mortgage document in place. They don't really want to have to be lending over different parts of real estate. Though it's technically very possible, they don't want to be having separate loans and those loans being separately mortgaged over separate parts of the same 
parcel of real estate. So again, it's technically quite available, but for reasons of commerciality, they choose not to do that. And that's where the circumstances will then derive how the joint acquisition will be done. So some people then ask, what about the SMSF trust deed? Should it be looked at to see whether there's specific power to acquire property jointly, etc.? Well, the answer is yes, it's always sensible to do that. Noting, however, that for the vast majority of occasions, if it's an acquisition of land or an acquisition of any other jointly held asset, there's usually no specific rule or term that you'd be looking for. A little bit different when we come to limited recourse borrowing arrangements because what we're looking at here is trustees, by and large, draw their power to do something from, well, by majority, from the common law. That's the 700-plus years of court-made law, which has been the life of trust law across the world. So that's where trustees draw their first power. This is then impacted by the Trustee Act that will apply to the particular trust. I'm from New South Wales, for example, so if the self-managed super fund was set up in New South Wales, then it's the New South Wales Trustee Act that will apply. Now, both sets of those rules will then be ameliorated or impacted, or if you will, adjusted by what the specific terms of the trust deed may say. So how do you approach this? How do you work out, does your super fund have the power for joint acquisitions, etc.? Well, it's common law first, trust act second, trust deed third. But for practical reasons, we practitioners will look at the trust deed first, commonly because we already know what the trustee act says and we're very familiar with what trust law itself provides over the whole development of trust. Now, For some areas, such as limited recourse borrowing arrangements, that's actually where it's quite critical where it must be in the trust deed. Now, the reason for that is over the 700 plus years of development of court-made trust law, trusts have not had a power to borrow. It's a basic standard rule that trust does not have the power to borrow against its assets it's acquiring for its beneficiaries and for the purposes of the trust. And So it's not, the power to borrow is not in the common law. We then look to the Trustee Act and, well, there's actually no provision in the Trustee Act either. The common provision you'll find nowadays is that the trustee is empowered to be able to invest as a prudent man who owes a duty to another. doesn't say that the trustee has a power to borrow as a prudent man who owes a duty to another. So that's an example of where to undertake a particular investment strategy where there's a loan required, a borrowing, it actually needs to be prescribed. It needs to be expressly stated in the trust deed because if it's not, then the particular trust, and in our example, superannuation fund, is actually not allowed to borrow to buy because there's no authority to do that. So the terms of the trust deed in that particular example will actually be quite critical. Joint acquisition, however, eh, not so much because it's a fairly standard practice that trustees have across the 700 plus years of law been empowered to acquire property and been empowered to acquire that property either completely and independently or jointly with another. Now, what sort of property might that joint acquisition be? Well, it could be commercial property, which then gets leased back to the sponsoring employer. 
remembering if you're doing that, make sure all the documentation can be demonstrated as being wholly at arm's length, not only for superannuation industry supervision act reasons of uh, section 109 but also for the in the taxing rules in the 97 act because if the commissioner of taxation finds that a super fund has non-arms length style of income well that style of income gets taxed at the top rate rather than the concessional superannuation rate so where it's um, commercial property and it's leased back to the member do ensure that you've got paperwork in place that can demonstrate that it is on an arm's length terms. One of the things I have mentioned in the past is the uh, use of options. This is commonly applied where what we have is a super fund that is, well, wanting to acquire property, but and in this particular example, it may be acquiring property from the member, of which means, of course, it'll be commercial property, but the super fund doesn't have enough to make the acquisition and Maybe for commercial reasons, it's unable to borrow as well. That's where options may assist in ensuring that the super fund has an ability to make progressive purchases over time and all by reference to a fixed or agreed price point. That fixed or agreed price point being fixed at the time of the grant of the original option. Again, take a bit of care with how you do these because you don't want the option agreement itself to effectively result in there being a non-arm's length relationship because that can impact on a future acquisition. Where there's joint acquisition, one of the things I've already said is that where we've got two or more and you know there's no reason why we can't have more self-managed super funds acquiring property jointly, Whose name goes on title? Well, this varies across Australia, I'm afraid I have to say, because in New South Wales, the law in New South Wales for the registration of land does not allow the identification of the entity, commonly a corporate trustee, um, and the capacity in which it acts. So if I had a company called Bob and Proprietary Limited and it's acting as trustee of my self-managed superannuation fund, if, if that company on behalf of that fund, let's ignore limited recourse borrowing arrangements for the present. If that company on behalf of that super fund acquires a piece of real estate, well, what you'll find is what will be registered is merely the company name, nothing more. Whereas if the same situation applied in Queensland, there is a mechanism by which the fact of Bobbin Proprietary Limited holding that Queensland property, it can also be registered that the company is doing so in its capacity as trustee of the super fund. So whose name goes on title? Mm, it depends. That depends on what jurisdiction you're in. What that may mean if people just want to be that little bit more conservative or, or just employ uh, a little better and stronger asset protection, it may be sensible to for those jurisdictions where you can't identify that the company is acting as a trustee of a super fund, it might be quite beneficial to ensure that a caveat is lodged. So in my particular example, I've got that land in New South Wales and it's registered to Bobbin Proprietary Limited. So what I, Peter Bobbin, may do is lodge a caveat over the land, merely expressing that Bobbin Ed, or Bobbin, sorry, Peter O Limited is holding the property for the purposes of and in connection with a superannuation 
arrangement of which Bobbin Proprietary Limited is also the trustee. Why am I doing that? Putting it plain and simple to the face of the world at large that the property is held pursuant to a trust deed, which is a self-managed super fund, and that it's not held beneficially for the company. Understanding property transactions means, of course, that it's also appropriate to embrace some stamp duty issues. Now, do understand that stamp duty varies across Australia. Like trust law, stamp duty is quite variable, quite across Australia. Generally speaking, I find New South Wales to be the, well, harshest, if I can express it that way, of all of the stamp duty territories. New South Wales just seems to have not as many as concessions as the other jurisdictions. So what I find is for the vast majority of occasions where a super fund is either acquiring property or transferring that property to the member, maybe at the retirement end of the super fund, full ad valorem stamp duty will be payable. And that is quite a bit, generally speaking. Now, there are some concessions, and I'm only going to mention the New South Wales ones, and I just again emphasise that in this area, you really do need to look at the stamp duty law of the jurisdiction which applies having regard to the purpose of what the objective may be. So there is a concession in New South Wales. It's Section 62A of the Duties Act, and this applies where there's property from commercial property, that is, held by an individual in their personal name, not in their company, not in their trust, but in their personal name, and they wish to transfer that property into the personal and private super fund. Where that applies, then it's a mere, provided that the transfer of the property into the super fund will be wholly reflective of their interest in the fund and that the property is promised by the super fund to be held solely for them, for the provision of their future benefits, then what we're talking about here is a maximum stamp duty transaction value of $500. And that can be quite favourable because if we've got a commercial property owned by Jim and we want to transfer that into the Jim super fund, were it not for this provision, the stamp duty would be 40490 But because Jim is able to show that the transfer of the property is consistent with that property being held by the super fund for Jim, for the future, $500 stamp duty only. So you can see how it's really quite attractive. There is also a stamp duty concession on transferring property between super funds where that's in the context of a member changing membership, which can be really valuable in a partnership or, or a marital breakdown. So there are some other stamp duty concessions. And I can also say that I've observed other yet other stamp duty concessions, not in New South Wales this time, in other jurisdictions where... There may even be a stamp duty exemption or minimisation of transferring property from the super fund to the member. I believe I'm right in saying that there's a particular concession under Queensland. I stand to be corrected, but I believe that's right. So stamp duty is just a factor of purchase. It's a, it's a cost. Exactly what the stamp duty applicable rules will be is entirely dependent upon the state or jurisdiction that we're dealing with. And that state or territory jurisdiction that we're dealing with will then turn on where the land is. We, the Superfund, might be located in New South Wales, but the land is in Victoria. And if that's the case, then it'll be Victorian stamp duty rules that will apply, not New South Wales.
Bob Superfund, mm -hmm. with the corporate trustee of Bob Propriety Limited, buys a property together with himself as an individual, then yeah. they would buy it as tenants in common. Yes. And both the corporate trustee's <coughs> name and Bob's name That's would correct. go onto the title. That's correct. When now Bob contributes in specie further tranches of this property, yep. do we then need to go back to the title office every time we do that and say there has been another transfer? And then Yes, that, that is what you should do. Yes, some people will delay it and batch it and do it over two or three years, but the best thing to do would be to every time there's an acquisition because there's another 100000 that's been put in and $100,000 worth is bought, every time there's an acquisition, get the records updated. And what happens if they don't do that? Because I've seen SMSFs contributing these tranches and not updating the title. There could be an issue with it because an auditor will might get a little upset because the covenants for superannuation are to keep assets separate from third parties. So if we have a situation where this person owns 50% and the super fund owns 50% and they have bought Another, 10%, yeah. say, just to pick it, so that's now 60 and that's now 40. Auditors would, would like to see that change on title because if it's then just Peter Proprietary Limited, remember we've got a company as trustee, then an auditor might get a little upset. It's a matter of getting it past the auditors. If the auditors really sign it, it off, then you then probably fine. can get away with yeah, it. Yeah, that's exactly. And more often than not, people get away with it for a couple of years and then you batch it and then just make the record straight. Welcome back. So buying a property jointly is one way to get a direct property interest into your SMSF, even when your SMSF doesn't have enough cash to buy the entire property. We will look at this topic again soon in episode 187. In the next episode, episode 183, Peter Bobbin will answer 16 listener questions about LRBAs. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.